Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. All right, here we are. We're at the end of Exodus. This is our final journey. The 10, uh, 10 to 12 uh, thing has become 13. God dwells among his children as we finish off Exodus 35 through 40. God dwells among his children. What a great, uh, uh, actually, series of messages to finish as we go into Emmanuel and the Christmas as God dwelling among men. Here we see God is going to dwell among his children. How many of you love looking at instructions and directions to build something. Anyone here? Anyone here just take the directions and kind of toss them to the side and try to do it first? Okay. How many of you, when you do that, you eventually go back to the instructions? All right. Yeah. I hate instructions and patent. There's something about them. Of course, you pull them out and they're like, and they're folded so many times, right? And it's got hundreds of things. And then you got to find the right language, right? And you find the right language and you finally find it and you start reading it and you, then you look, well, maybe I don't have the right language. And then you go back. I just hated those types of things. I, I hate Christmas when, when they give my kids toys that have to be put together and birthdays and things like that. And you know, my brothers and my in-laws and my parents used to do that all the time. I eventually got to the point and says, listen, if you're going to give my kids something for Christmas or their birthday that has to be put together, then you must put it together. And so that's just got the thing. Now, what was nice is now I have Brandon and Jacob. I've taught them is that when we buy something, here it is. Put it together. Uh, I just, it's one of those things that I just get them. And even sometimes reading it. And I'm one of those guys that, you know, when you got a car, anyone else have ever been in a situation, as soon as you buy a car, you buy the Chilton's uh, mechanic book for it or the, what's, what's the other ones that's the other big ones out here? Uh, you know what I'm talking about? You just buy the thing. Oh, and you just read those things. Now it's just YouTube, right? As long as you have an internet connection, you just YouTube it and watch it while you're doing it. And I love those things, you know, because sometimes just reading instructions can sometimes be difficult. But here we are. We're coming now to the construction of the tabernacle. What we've been finding is that it's God's plan and purpose to make right what went wrong in the garden. He wants to reestablish his special relationship with his children to meet and to dwell with them as he did in the garden. His plan is to send a Messiah, a Savior, to redeem man from the curse of sin and death that we've been speaking about in our catechism the last few weeks. From Genesis chapter 3 and onward, God has been revealing his plan to do this reconciliation through special men. So far, Seth, Noah, and Abraham, and so on. It is through Abraham God reveals that the Messiah will come through his descendants, specifically first Isaac and then Jacob. Jacob will be named, will be renamed Israel, and it will be through his 12 sons that God will make a great nation that will serve as his mediators between Yahweh and the nations. But as we open the pages of the book of Exodus, we find Israel is in bondage, groaning because of their slavery and crying out for help. Moses records that God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, and saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And we spent some time going through that 
as God heard, God remembered, God saw, and God knew. There's hope and strength and power and encouragement in a God who hears, remembers, sees, and knows. And I pray this week that you've been blessed by a God who heard your cry, who saw your need, who knows exactly what the solution is and remembers you. Exodus records the wonderful acts of Yahweh as he rescues his people from the clutches of of Egypt, as he communicates his covenant and great promises with his children and instructs his children how to receive his holy presence in their midst by building a tabernacle. Now this tabernacle included not only a dwelling place for God's glory to reside, but it also provided all the tools and the rituals necessary for the temporary atonement for the people's sin, so that they may enter into Yahweh's presence through the sacrificial system. Unfortunately, as we saw last week, it did not take long for Israel to rebel against Yahweh's laws as they break the first two commandments. In anger, God threatens to abandon his people and to start over anew with Moses. However, God displays both his justice and his mercy. Now, last week's passage clearly revealed the cycle of idolatry and intercession and integrity. And I, I pray that you spend some time this week speaking of that as I, as I asked you to. If not, write it down and speak again as we look forward to the Christmas. Idolatry, intercession, and integrity. That will repeat throughout the history of Israel. The Old Testament records Israel's continued fall into idolatry. A man of God interceding on their behalf. And then Yahweh forgiving and restoring them. And this cycle is not endemic to Israel only as we saw last week. But this pattern repeats in our lives as well. Even for those of us that are Christ born, that are reborn, that are new in Christ. Yet God still deals merciful by forgiving and restoring, and this is important, repentive sinners. Not sinners, but sinners. Now as we approach the closing chapters of Exodus this morning, We read that Yahweh instructs Moses to begin the construction on the temple or the tabernacle that we've been reading about several weeks ago. So with that, I hope you have your Bibles. Turn to Exodus chapter 35, and we're going to do some reading this morning. Let's start with verse 10. We're going to go jump around just a little bit, so be ready. So Exodus chapter 35, let's read verse 10. Let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded. The tabernacle, its tents, its coverings, its hooks, its frames, its bars, its pillars, and its bases. The ark with its poles, the mercy seat, and the veil of the screen. Verse 13, the table with its poles and all of its utensils and the bread of the presence. In verse 14, it's the lampstand also for the light with its utensils and its lamps and the oil for the light. As well as the altar of incense with its poles and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense and the screen for the odor at the door of the tabernacle. And verse 16, the altar of burnt offerings with its grating of bronze, its poles and all its utensils, the basins and its stands, the hangings of the courts, its pillars, its bases and the screen for the gates of the court, the pegs of the tabernacle, the pegs of the court and their courts. And then verse 19, the finely worked garments for ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests. Father, as we looked at this chapter, and some might have joined me in reading, these are those types of passages that very quickly we recognize that we're just going to pass over because they seem to be so detailed. And Father, we're not always detailed people. 
But Father, yet even here we see your mercy and your grace. And we see law and the gospel. So Father, let us take some time this morning to, to consider these passages in the light of all of Scripture. And even in its time, as progressively you're revealing your wonderful plan to redeem man through a Savior. So Father, open up our minds and hearts to receive your word with gladness. Father, let us respond to the Spirit's work. I pray that you would limit the, the getting up and getting down and the, and the different types of things that can draw our attention away. Father, give me strength as I stand here. Father, let me speak the words that are edifying and give us the difference to know the, uh, know the difference between my mere opinion and your word. We thank you for your word. And may we hold it dear. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. The fact that you and I here are reading the, ta- the instructions to build the tabernacle shows Yahweh's mercy. Even though he has called them stick, stiff-necked and rebellious, he continues to honor his covenant and commands them to build a tabernacle. His presence is still going to dwell among them. Even though they're still rebellious and still stiff-necked, even though he knows they're still going to continue in many of those types of things. He honors his covenant. Now, we've already spent some time on the importance uh, of the people following the, to follow the pot pattern and the precise instructions for the holy place. Now, Moses takes time to record the actual preparation and the building of the tabernacle. The tabernacle is designed as a portable shrine that could be packed up and easily moved by the people as they journey to the promised land. Hence why you'll see it talks about poles and, and places to put the poles. It was 100 feet long and 70 feet wide. It consisted of the outer court, as you might remember the pictures we showed several weeks ago, and the holy place where the priest, where only the priest could enter. And then the holy place was 45 feet by 15 feet and divided in two parts. The holy place where the priest would go, and then the most holy place. These two rooms were separated by a thick veil that only the high priest could enter into. It was called the Holy of Holies. And as you might recall in Matthew, that's the veil that tore apart when Christ rose from the dead in his crucifixion and resurrection. And then only once a year could the high priest enter into that Holy of Holies to make atonement for the people of Israel. It was there that the ark would be. The most holy place or holy of holies was 15 feet squared, making it cubed in shape. And which is interesting, the reason why I had him read that parish of scripture is that when you hear about New Jerusalem coming down, guess what shape it's in? A cube. And so it's interesting as we go in there. So it's 15, or well, let me see, it was 15 feet squared. And I believe if we look at Jerusalem, it's 1,500, uh, uh, I think it's 1,500 miles uh, long, wide, and high, if I, if I remember right. I could be wrong. That's my mere opinion. That you can, sh- you can shift now from the wheat. All right. So it's 15 square, but it is cubed into shape. And so it gives us a presence of something holy. The tabernacle took six to eight months to construct and would not be replaced by the temple that Solomon built until approximately 600 years later. Now, here's a warning knowing that he was giving them a huge task and their rebellious hearts, uh, knowing their rebellious hearts, God once again reminds them of the fourth commandment. Now it's interesting as we read Exodus, how often God repeats the fourth commandment. Look with me in Exodus chapter 35. Look at verse one. Now Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and he said to him, 
These are the things that the Lord commanded you to do. Six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to what? Death. This was very serious, this warning. You shall kindle no fire in all of your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. Most likely Yahweh is reminding them due to the propensity of humans to tackle work without regard to observing a time of worship. It is doubtful that the Egyptians gave them much time off to rest and recuperate and to worship during Israel's time of bondage. And that mindset very well might have led them to build the temple without any regard to God's command. Oh, we've got to build the temple, so we're just going to work until it's done. But God pauses and says, only six days. You and I understand this very well, as many times you and I forsake rest and recuperation to get work done. Too often you and I have been guilty of choosing to do other activities that compete for our time to gather and worship God. And I want to say, I want to think for many of you have have arranged your work schedules and arranged your kids' sports and done many things so you could be here. Thank you for that. You're honoring God and honoring God's word in doing so. Now, I want to say here for those who many times may have to work on Sunday, I'm not saying that they're not honoring God. They can honor God on a different day. But when I say there's importance of putting it in your schedule. Yes, God wants us to work hard and he wants us to work honestly. But he also desires for us to rest, to recuperate and spend time in worship with them. So knowing their propensity, he warns them at the onset, do not get to working so much that you ignore my command. For we will see that one of the reasons that they'll be exiled into Babylon for 70 years is because they forgot the Sabbath very quickly. So the work begins. So with this warning in mind, God commands them to begin to work. Now there's two steps we're going to see here. Step one is giving. Look with me at Exodus 35, look at verse 4. Now Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. Now as you and I continue to follow Moses' record, we read of the, of the people's heartfelt generosity as they overwhelmingly respond to the call to give and to serve. Look at verse 20 of that chapter, chapter 35. In that response, then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed. And and begin to look at at the phrases here. They departed from the presence of Moses. And in verse 21, and they came, everyone whose heart stirred him. And everyone whose spirit moved him. And brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting. Tent of meeting, by the way, is another name for the tabernacle. And for all of its services for its holy garments. So they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart, brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets and all sorts of gold objects. Every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord. And every man, or excuse me, and everyone who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarns or fine linens of goat's hair. Who would have fine linens of goat's hair? I don't know, but obviously that must mean something then. Or tanned ram skins or goat skins brought them. Look at verse 24. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it as the Lord's contribution. 
Everyone who possessed a kea wood of any use and work brought in. Every skillful woman spun with her hands. And they all brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet and fine twin and linens. Again in verse 26. And all the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skill spun the goat's hair. And they brought onyx stones and stones to be set for the ephod and for the breastpiece and the spices and the oils for the light. In verse 29, and all the men and women and the people of Israel whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that God had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. A lot of, I know that was a big portion of just almost seems repetitive, but however, there's an importance here. Their generosity here is overwhelming. They respond with moving hearts and stirring hearts to the generosity that God asked them to. And that generosity was so overwhelming that eventually they had to be told to stop. Look at verses 5 and 7 of Exodus 36. The people bring, here's the carpenters and the workers. They come and they complain to Moses. And what do they complain about? Oh, the people are too lazy. Oh, the people aren't bringing in what they need to bring. Hey, what are we supposed to do with, with, with nothing here? But listen what they complain about. The pre people bring much more than enough for the work that the Lord has commanded. So Moses gave command and word was complained. Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution of the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing for the material that they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. I'm going to tell you, there's probably not too many pastors that are going to do that. There's probably not too many leaders that are saying that. I can guarantee the, the IRS is not going to say that. Hey, quit bringing in. We don't need any more money. Let me ask you, how does a stiff neck group of people go from rebellious, self-centered living to overwhelming generosity of goods and service? Well, the answer is found in the passage with phrases like the whole heart stirred them. Their spirit moved them. Whose heart moved them. Who is stirring and moving their hearts to generosity? Well, Yahweh himself. Scripture teaches us in Proverbs 21 that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. And he turns it wherever he will. Now, I can tell you this. If God can move and stir the heart of a king, he can move and stir the hearts of former slaves. It is God who moves and stirs our heart to give and to serve him. He knows that you and I cannot exactly, we will not of our own selfish accord. So he moves to change our hearts so that we may desire his commands more than our own passions. And this heartfelt generosity and giving and serving by the Israelites is the exact same call that he has for you and I today. Jesus would tell the rich young man who desired eternal life to go sell what you possess and give to the poor. Then you'll have treasures in heaven. Then come and follow me. The good Dr. Luke wrote in the Acts of the Apostles of a man at Caesarea who was named Cornelius, a satyrian who was known of the Italian courtyard. He was a devout man who feared God with all of his household and that he gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. The Apostle Paul teaches the Church of Rome that those who contribute do so in generosity. He also instructs his spiritual son, Timothy, to warn his church congregation that as for the rich in this present age, and I would have to say that if you're in America, you are rich. 
charged them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but to set their hopes on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. In other words, all that God has given us is, yes, for us to enjoy, but also to be generous, to give, to share, to meet needs. And finally, as we read several weeks ago in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, you'll see it here on the monitor. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. What you and I can learn from their response and from Scripture is that you and I are also called to be sacrificial, generous, cheerful givers to advance the kingdom of God. Does now God, who created the entire universe from nothing, does He need your goods and services? We would say no. Yet in God's plan, He blesses us both with material goods and skills and talents that you and I may use them for His service. Let me ask you, are you willing to give generously for the work of the Lord? For you and I have a commission. As ambassadors, we are to build embassies, so to speak, churches and plant churches and send missionaries. And even here in our own city is to take care of the things of God. So are you a sacrificial, cheerful, generous giver? As these Israelites prove that it's possible for rebellious, stiff-necked, passion-seeking people to change as God moves in our hearts. The second step is constructing all the materials needed for the tabernacle. Now, as you and I have seen, this is very precise and it's going to be very elaborate. This is for God himself. It's, there's these phrases that used to be good for uh, government work. It used to be good or this is good enough for church work. We used to say that. All the, but this here is something for God. This is not something that you're just putting together by the lowest bidder. Right? You know, it's not just something just so it can pass inspection. Yet God, just as God prepared the heart of the people to give, he also provided the men and women skills to accomplish the task. If you were to look at Exodus chapter 35 and look down at verse 30, you see that the Lord has called by the name Bezaliah, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, the tribe of Judah, and he's filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and all craftsmanship. What? To devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze and cutting stones for setting and carving wood for work in every skilled craft. This man was talented. And yet he has inspired him to teach both him and the son of uh, o- o- Oholab, uh, the son of Ashmas of the tribe of Dead, they filled him with skill to do everything and then to teach others to follow in. God gave people skills and talents to follow the pattern, complete the work. These former slaves, interestingly, had intelligence and skill. Maybe they did this type of work for the Egyptians, most likely. This was probably part of their slavery, part of their duties. Moses has the tabernacle built according to God's specific plan and pattern and he employs a crew of divinely inspired artisans to construct the tent and all its materials. In chapters 36 through 39, 
It details all the work done for the building of the tabernacle, all of its furnishings and the special roads for Aaron and his sons. What a sight it must have been when it was all finished. And if I may, I want to take just a moment to make an editorial note. God is still going to allow Aaron to be the high priest. We were talking about this in our men's uh, thing. That's why uh, study just passed Thursday. And that's why it just is in my mind. As we talk about it, when you looked about last week, it was Aaron who built and made the, the, the calf. It was he who built an altar. It was he who declared a day of worship and fa- uh, 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 of feasting and allowed the people to break loose, to rejoice and play. It was then he who came up with the ridiculous excuse of what happened. It was he who was in charge, but yet he failed. But yet as we continue this, God says, I'm still going to make Aaron my high priest. Not only is that, it's going to be Aaron himself, the one who fashioned the gold calf with his own hand, is going to be the one who's going to don these wonderful, elaborate uh, headdresses and an ephod and walk into the most holy of holies. I can imagine that first time, he might have been a little bit scared. But this is just a side note, and we'll get to the the, the the fact that God is merciful to sinners. Paul says, I'm the chiefest. I think Aaron might have been saying, uh, wait a second. What a wonderful story there. We can miss that if we're just reading through these things quickly. But Aaron and his sons are still finding mercy. So let's go on. What a daunting task this must have been for a group of former slaves. But God in his wisdom and providence has already provided men and women of immense and varied talents. We can count on the fact that God always provides that for which he commands. If he says to build this, he's going to give us what's needed. He's going to give us the people needed. We see that even in the creation and ordination of the church, in our case, God has graciously given the church spiritual gifts to individuals of the church that you and I may fulfill the great commission and the great commandment to make disciples of the, of the nations and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Please look at the monitor. You'll see that scripture teaches us that he has given each believer at least one gift Ephesians says, but grace, uh, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And 1 Peter says, as each received a gift, use it to serve one another. So if you're here today and you are a Christ believer, you have at least one gift. Number two, you'll see it up there already, is that he has provided different gifts. Each and every one of us may have similar gifts, but we all have different gifts as well. Look at the monitor again, Romans 12, 4 through 8. Paul writes to the church. He says, for as one body, we have many members. As in one church, we have many members. And the members do not all have the same function. So we, we, though many, are one body in Christ and individual members one another. Verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith If service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortations, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So not only has he provided everyone at least one gift, but also different gifts. Number three, we say that all the gifts are important 
and necessary. If you were to take your Bibles and you don't have to do this at this moment, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you'll see that God goes into that, you know, Paul speaks about his every, every, everybody has an eye, an ear, a, a hand and fingers and so on and so forth. But he says not all are members of it. Each member of the body is important and has its function. In the same way, the church, not all are pastors, not all are teachers, but some are servers, some are givers, but they are all important. That's so important for you and I to recognize. There is no hierarchy here in this church. I may serve as a pastor, but I serve under your pleasure as one who labors for the Lord. But so does Landon, as well as, as, well as Randy. But yet we're no different other than spiritual leaders to help lead you in your work. No matter what your work may be, it's important. And without you, the body says, when one suffers, all suffer. That's why he says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Uh, laugh with those, or, or cry with those, or weep with those who weep. And so I call you to see that all gifts are important and necessary. Never malign your gift. Never malign your talents. Remember when I was a youth pastor, we'd go to these pastor meetings. You know, you have all these senior pastors and stuff. And, well, who are you? What do you do? Well, I'm just the youth pastor. I can't tell you how many pastors would stop me right there and say, never use the word just. Or don't say you're just a pastor of a small church. Let me say, whatever your gift is, whatever your talent and ability, it's a gift from God. And it's needed here and number four, the purpose of the gifts is to build the body of Christ. As Paul says, to each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. It is not for your edification. It's not for your uh, agenda, but it's to use to build others up. So as you come through this door, you should be looking. All right, here's my spiritual gift. Who needs my spiritual gift? In what way could I use it today? But not only on Sunday, but each time we meet and throughout the week. For some of you are giving gifts that I do not have. And others are giving gifts that no one else has. And there are many ways that I love our church, but there are some ways in which our church is incomplete. It's incomplete in the fact that there are some that God has not yet blessed us with people who have that gift. But more or less, there are many times I pray, Lord, send me someone who has this gift. But then God comes and says, wait a second, Rob. There are people in your church who are not yet serving. They have that gift. So let me gently challenge you, but then let me greatly rebuke you. If you are not serving, then get to it. For you're robbing the people of God of that gift, no matter how insignificant you may think that gift is. Like ancient Israel, God has provided the people necessary to build his church. Do you know what your spiritual gift is? Are you serving and building the body of Christ or are you just spectating and attending? If not, then it's time to get engaged in the important work that God has called you to. Let us help you find your place of service. Pray that God will move your heart to stir one another up to love and good works. We can help you find that spiritual gift. We can help you and plug you get in. And I believe there's some of you here that have gifts and abilities and things that we are not yet even doing or have not even considered that God may use to build this body of Christ. 
Now, as the construction of the tabernacle concludes, we see that God has provided the pattern, the money and the materials, because where did the money and materials come from? came from the Egyptians, who were so good to see them go. Remember that back earlier in our messages, probably in message uh, three or four or somewhere around there? God provided the heart and the skill and provided the people. And what's important here, because you see God's mercy, because after the battle and the sin and worshiping the golden calf, we see true repentance as the people obeyed all that God commanded. Look at Exodus chapter 39, verses 42 through 43. Chapter 39, look at verse 42 and 43. According to all that the Lord had commanded Moses in verse 42 of chapter 39. So the people of Israel had done all the work. And Moses saw all the work and behold, they had done it. But what's important is what continues. As the Lord had commanded, so had they done it. Then Moses blessed them. A lot different from when God's ready to, to uh, destroy them and start all over, is it not? Here's what happens. Repentance is key. You need to understand this. The genuine mark of true repentance is a renewed desire for God and obedience to his commands. John the Baptist would condemn the Pharisees by demanding, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? bear fruit in keeping with repentance. But however, due to their repentance, speaking of the Israelites, God is now pleased to come and dwell among his people as we read in Exodus chapter 40, look at verse 34. Then, you got to get this, you need to underline this, for this here is a move in the progressive display revelation of God's salvation. Verse 40, or chapter 40, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of the meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. One day, that'll be the new heaven and the earth. But for now, in this period of redemption, it's here in this tabernacle. God is reconciling them to himself. Now, not fully, because if we were to continue, it says a very sad phrase there, I think at the end, it might be the last, I don't know if it's, a, it's not the last one, but there's that phrase in that, and Moses could not enter the tabernacle. So it's not complete. There is something still to be done. Redemption is not final, but yet God is dwelling among his people. But it's due to their obedience. Yahweh rightly takes his place by filling the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant, where the mercy seat stands. It is here that the high priest will offer atonement for the sins of the people once a year. It also serves as the throne room where God will speak to his people through Moses. We spoke of this two weeks ago. The Holy of Holies will serve as the intersanctum of the tabernacle as we end the book of Exodus. We read of God's kingly presence now on earth. Once in the garden, now his glory resides there earthly in the tabernacle. Now, the obedience of the children of Israel and God's presence in the tabernacle reveals two themes I want to shortly go over. It reveals the importance of obedience and the assurance of God's presence. As we look through this portion, you need to see the importance of obedience to God's word and the assurance of God's presence to dwell among his people. 
God has promised us that if you and I, if we repent of our sin and believe in Christ, that he will come and dwell among us. That is the gospel, his plan to redeem humanity from the curse of sin and death. As the temple will replace the tabernacle and God's glory will reside in the temple, Jesus replaces the temple as Jesus told the Pharisees. I tell you, something is greater than the temple is here. Take your Bible now and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. It's important that you see this. For this is what, these are the types of things that get you through the difficult times. Ephesians chapter 2. In verse 19, Jesus in his atoning work is now in the process excuse me, of sanctifying a new sanctuary, a new dwelling place for God. Look at verse 19 of Ephesians 2. So then you are no longer strangers, or do I have it there? I have it on there in the monitor? Okay, go. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and you are members of the household of God built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Emmanuel, God's glory shining. One day God will once again, here's the encouragement, because not only is he doing that now in this bride, in his church, in the hearts as those each heart submits to him. But one day God will once again dwell with his children on the new heaven and new earth. The book of Revelation describes New Jerusalem again, as I said, as built as a cube like the Holy of Holies. And from there, his kingly presence will surround the whole earth. And until that day, God has promised to all that is repented of their sins that I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Amen. Do you ever feel that God is not there? Could you imagine the Israelites feeling, wait, God wants to destroy us? We're under the wrath of God. Who are we? They could not go to the temple or to the, to the mountain. They were afraid of the smoke and the, and the fire. They were surrounded by, smoke, by, by cloud of pillar, a cloud of pillar by day and a cloud of pillar at night, a fire at night. It was fearful. But yet he says, I will never forsake you nor leave you. We see this theme of obedience, insurance of God's presence in the closing verses of Exodus chapter 40. And with that, we're going to close. So can you go to Exodus chapter 40? And look at verse 36 with me. The importance of obedience and assurance of God's presence. Even in their sin, God was mercy to, merciful to them. And in that, he brings them and restores them as they're repentive, obedient to them. And he gives them an assurance of his presence. Throughout all their journeys, in verse 36 of that last chapter, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. They would journey. They would begin to walk. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys." In other words, they did not leave until the Spirit of God told them to leave. And they would stay where the God of Spirit would tell, where God's Spirit would tell them. 
in the same way they would know that they would never leave the promises of God. Now, you and I do not have a tabernacle, something visible that we can follow, at least as a tabernacle. But I believe that you and I do have a tabernacle of sorts where the God resides and shows us where to go and when to stay. I, find, I believe that's found right here in his word. Believe that as we take it, and when God says we do, we do. When God says we don't, we don't. I believe God's church gives us wisdom and, and through his Holy Spirit gives us the advice of other Christians to know when God says, I'm walking or I'm staying. But there's an assurance of God's purpose for us. What a wonderful picture of God's assurance and protection that's found as his spirit comes and his glory resides there. Jesus himself promises in Matthew 28, 20, Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. You and I have an assurance that he will never leave us nor forsake us. But we look forward to that day that one day we will be with him and he will be our God and we will be his people and he will dwell among us in a land that needs no light. What a wonderful day. You and I, the importance of, of obedience and the assurance of God's presence with us is what gets us through those dark nights of the soul. It's that which encourages us to give and to serve as God calls us to. Let me end with this. I believe God wants you to understand that God has a plan and purpose in reconciling us to himself. That he has empowered men and women to partner with him in advancing the kingdom. He wants you to believe that he has graciously provided all that is necessary to obey his commands and to fulfill the Great Commission. He has empowered us with the funds and he's empowered us with the people. He wants you to believe in your calling and equipping as ambassadors and that he will help us along the way. He wants you to desire to give generously, sacrificially, and cheerfully to the cause of Christ in advancing his kingdom, as well as to serve in the same way, sacrificially, generously, and cheerfully in the building up of the body of Christ. And lastly, God wants you to obey him completely, assured of his great love and his mercy and grace, while we wait patiently until that day he returns and he makes all things new. Let's hear the word of God and let's say amen as his presence leads us. Let's bow our heads if you would. Ask the worship team to make their way up. Just want you to take a moment to pause, to consider what God's word has. Are you giving? Is your heart moved? Are you praying for God? Show with me what I should do with my money. How about how God, how should I serve? Is your life marked by repentance and confession of obedience, trusting in the assurance of his presence? If not, I would pray that you would come and respond to the Holy Spirit's movement in your life. That you too may find mercy for God who loves and dwells among his children. Father, we come before you and we ask for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for all that you've given us. 
And Father, I pray that you begin to move and stir in our hearts. Give us a holy discontent in, in how we're using our funds and how we're using our goods and our time and our energy and our talents and abilities. Lord, let us not use them just for our own enjoyment, though that is part and parcel of why you've given them, but also, Lord, to give back to the body of Christ. And Father, I pray that we would be obedient to you. May repentance, our repentance be shown by obedience, encouraged and strengthened by the fact that we can be assured of your presence today. We thank you so much for your word. We thank you for these Israelites, Lord, as their examples for us. And I pray that, Lord, that you would show mercy upon us and show us your grace as we move from here. We praise the name of Christ. God's people said, He's a good God. He's given all that he's given us so that we may advance his kingdom. Let's do so this week. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.